Alright, why don't you raise your hand if you need a sheet, and we have some folks up at the front that'll pass them back. Keep your hands raised. Good morning. While they're passing these sheets back, why don't you turn your Bibles to the book of 3 John. As Hunter and Nick have affectionately said the last two weeks, it's right after 2 John and before Revelation. So turn with me to 3 John. All right. All right, we're going to read the text. 3 John, verses 9 through 15. Hear the word of God. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. You know our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This morning I had the pleasure of completing our studies on the three letters of John. Last year, Ryan and Dustin talked through the first epistle. Two weeks ago, Hunter taught 2 John. Last week, Nick, the first half of 3 John, and I will complete it today with the last six verses of 3 John. You'll see an outline on your sheet that covers four main points this morning. Four points, the necessity of imitation, the disease of diatrophies, the example of Demetrius, and a salutation. So at the top of your sheet, you'll see a heading that says main point. The entire text of this scripture reaches its climax in verse 11. The only imperative in this entire letter is found in verse 11. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. The goal of our preaching at Grace Community Church is to make the main point of the text the main point of the sermon. The main point of this text comes from the climax of the text. The main point, very simply, is imitate good, do not imitate evil. Now, it's a simple point, maybe even a little bit of an awkward point. You may think it's an odd main point for a text in the Bible. But what is at stake if we don't understand the nature of imitation in 3 John? What's at stake in this passage? John tells us right here in the text. Whoever does good is from God. And whoever does evil has not seen God. Whether you imitate evil or imitate good provides the evidence of whether you are from God or have not seen God. Over the next few minutes, I want to prove to you that what's at stake in this passage is the gospel itself. Is the gospel itself. Here's what I mean. 
John lays out a grid in his three epistles that's very important. In 1 John, what we covered last year, we lay out the doctrinal case for the incarnated Christ against the emerging Gnosticism in the church. He encourages general Christians that they can know that they have eternal life by three tests. A doctrinal test, a moral test, and a love test. And when 1 John progresses to 2 and 3 John, he moves from a general warning to a specific warning. To 2 John, which is to the elect lady, a church. To 3 John, which is to an individual, Gaius. 1 and 2 John and 3 John have a relationship. 2 and 3 John is a natural extension of 1 John and demonstrate how a church or an individual can drift from the gospel or even lose the gospel. They can fail the tests of 1 John in two separate but equally simple ways. In 2 John, the church loses the gospel doctrinally. But in 3 John, Diotrephes loses it morally. 2 John deals with many deceivers outside the body, false teachers. 3 John deals with one deceiver inside the body, Diotrephes. 2 John is a warning not to affirm the hospitality of false teachers. 3 John is a warning on refusing hospitality to the right teachers. The danger of 2 John is to accommodate false teaching. The danger of 3 John is to accommodate false living. The danger of 3 John, the, the second John's emphasis is to bring truth back into balance with love. 3 John's emphasis is to bring love back into balance with truth. In 2 John, the church is too hospitable, too loving at the expense of truth. They fail the doctrinal test. In 3 John, Diotrephes has no indication he has bad truth. He's too narrow, too obtuse at the expense of love. You see, a church or an individual can lose or drift from the gospel, either doctrine or morally. Which one do you think we're more susceptible to today? Which one is GCC most susceptible to? I will submit to you that this body is probably more likely susceptible to the error of 3 John than the error of 2 John. In this context, I believe we're more likely to err on false living and a lack of love than on false teaching and lack of truth. It's in this context that John writes to Gaius and says, imitate good and faithful works and don't imitate evil, otherwise you might drift from the gospel. This is why the gospel hangs on the main point of imitation in 3 John. This is why John devotes half of his three letters to this. What are we going to imitate? That's what's at stake in this shortest book of the Bible. So, the main point is imitation. So we're going to move on to our first heading, which is the necessity of imitation. We're going to start with verse 11, and we're going to backtrack to 9 through 10. So let's get your eyes back on the passage. And we will look again at verse 11. Let's read verse 11. Beloved. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So when we turn the corner into verse 9 of this passage, John immediately shifts the letter from the good example of Gaius, his character, his behavior, 
to the complete opposite in Diotrephes. Everything has been glowing to this point, but it takes a turn. And it's a situation that John must address. 9 through 10, John goes into detail about the disease that's spreading from Diotrephes. But in verse 11, he provides the climax. He provides another address to Gaius. He says, Beloved, this is the fourth and last time he will specifically address John or address Gaius in this passage as Beloved. It's also the first and only imperative in the book. And it's expressed in two ways. Do not imitate evil do not, or imitate good. Those are the two ways. At this point, I want to pause and ask a question. Are some of us uncomfortable with the fact of a sermon having its primary point in imitation? Does it seem moralistic to talk about imitation? I will submit to you that each generation has a movement, a distinctive. For many millennials in this room, including myself, one of our distinctives is gospel-centeredness. One of our distinctives is Christ-centeredness, and I thank God for that. Gospel-centeredness is the rediscovery of the gospel to be the central theme that permeates our church, our lives, our marriages, our work. You hear terms like gospel-centered lives, gospel-centered preaching, gospel-centered teaching, gospel-centered Old Testament, gospel-centered churches. Many of us read the blog of the Gospel Coalition. We love to say that term around here. But in many ways, gospel-centeredness of this generation was a response to the perceived fundamentalist or moralism of the previous generation. What would Jesus do bracelets, the moral majority? All of these things have a place. But of course, with every reaction becomes the peril of an overreaction, or as Dustin likes to say, reaction doctrine. I believe the concept of holiness, in particular imitation, is a casualty to the gospel-centered offensive to moralism. So many people have misfired on the doctrine of justification, which is the central way that the church stands or falls, and simultaneously diminished the doctrine of sanctification. Imitation's dues do not contradict the gospel's guns. Instead, the great indicatives of the gospel require and empower a lifelong pursuit of the imitation of Christ. If our love of the guns of the gospel leave us uneasy of the dues of the gospel, let's let John and this passage of Scripture be a gentle but biblical corrective for us. So, the question is, what is imitation? What am I talking about here? Over the next couple of minutes, I want to give a concise theology of imitation in three ways. Uh, but they're not just limited to these three. First, this is a heavy one your sheet. Imitation is inherent in creation. Imitation is inherent in creation. Genesis 1.27 says that man was made in the image of God. The implication being made is that in the image of God, we are meant to image him. Especially him to the world. Then, later on in the chapter, it says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So God desires that the whole world would be full of image bearers or imitators of him. It's in our very DNA. Second, imitation is vertical with Jesus. While we have been called to be imitators of God in Genesis, we've all imitated others at the expense of God. We've all gone our own way. 
Jesus comes and is the only one to live a fully righteous life in full imitation of God. Therefore, his righteous life can be a sacrificial substitute for us appropriated by faith. But our relationship with Jesus is not just as a substitute, it's also an example. Hear the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd, Jesus says to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If we're going to follow a person, Jesus, we imitate him. Here the apostle, here the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that we might be the firstborn of many brethren. You see, we're saved. We're predestined by God for a purpose. To be conformed to the image of Christ. Or simply put, to be imitators of Christ. So it's in our very DNA and it's also called in our relationship to Jesus. Third and finally, imitation can be horizontal with brothers and sisters. Horizontal with brothers and sisters. Listen to the Apostle Paul in these few verses. 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 17. 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 17 says this. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me, Paul says. Philippians 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen... Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says very simply, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me. Fix your eyes on, the walk, on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So imitation can be or is inherent in creation. It's critical in our relationship with Jesus, and it's horizontal to others. The difference in this passage the Apostle John picks up is this isn't just imitating an example. It's imitating good. It's imitating a faithful work. If you turn your eyes back to what Nick taught on last week, verse 5 of 3 John says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers and strangers, though they are. John is saying, don't just imitate Gaius, but imitate his faithful works. Imitate the good. If we just focus on a biblical example, that's not the major thrust. It's doing the good works. So why imitate good, but not evil? What is John getting at here in verse 11? He gives a supporting statement in the last half of verse 11. He says this, whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. John is essentially saying this. Do not imitate evil, not just because it has a corrosive effect on our behavior, although it does. Not just because it causes you to shun hospitality and love, although it does. But more importantly, it presents, our imitation presents the evidence of our spiritual condition. We imitate what we love. We resemble what we revere. John is saying one way to diagnose the true health of a person is to see what they imitate. 
He's alluding to the obedience test from 1 John. This indicates whether someone is a true believer or a non-believer. Whether we do good or bad, whether we imitate good or imitate bad, proves whether we've really been born again or see God. Very simply, if there is a pattern for imitating evil in your life, according to John, you're not a believer. In the Bible Belt today, we can have a tendency to say, well, this person grew up in the church. This person's a baby Christian. They're just not imitating good right now. This type of thinking must be confronted by the obedience test in 1st and 3rd John. Must call into question whether somebody, according to this verse, verse 11, has seen God. So imitate, uh, imitate good, do not imitate evil. So what is the evil that John is talking about in verse 11? He's calling back and referencing verses 9 and 10 of this chapter. The words, the action, and the person of the atrophies. So, let's go to your second heading, which is the disease of the atrophies. And let's read it. Read it again. I have written something to the church, but the atrophies, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So, what are our introductory observations of this passage and of the atrophies? We see John, the last living apostle, the writer of multiple books in the New Testament, a pastor of pastors, writing a letter that's either been lost or destroyed by the atrophies. While this letter is lost, we can surmise some of its contents. All scholars agree that this letter is in reference to a lost letter, not the letters of 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. It would seem that this letter contained recommendations from John to this church and these individuals about traveling teachers and their love and hospitality for them. Since Diotrephes rejects John's authority, he rejects the letter. He doesn't allow that letter to come in among the body. So what are the motives that would have caused Diotrephes to have rejected an apostolic letter? Many attempts have been made to identify the motives here. We cannot say conclusively what his motives are. But we can say with a level of certainty that this disagreement was not doctrinal. It was not theological. If you know anything about 1 and 2 John, you know that John was not, would not hesitate to call out doctrinal issues in a body or within an individual. So we have to assume that he refuses to do so here because the failings that are going on in the church is moral, not doctrinal. Diotrephes has lost the gospel morally, not doctrinally. He's committing a different error than 2 John. What we see in John's description of Diotrephes is a progressive degeneration of behavior. We see his actions called wicked and nonsense. We see him rejecting authority. We see him leading that to gossip and slander. We see him shunning love and hospitality. And we see him misusing church discipline. All these things are progressive and degenerate over time. So here's a question. How can somebody 
who's a member of a church, even leadership of a church, be described in such terms? How can one's behavior degenerate so quickly and decisively? The key that unlocks this question is found in how John describes his character in verse 9. What's the key that unlocks this question? It says, quote, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. Who likes to put himself first. This is what I'm terming the disease of Diotrephes. There's a root of all of his actions, and it starts right here with a correct diagnosis. The bad example of Diotrephes is an example of selfishness, self-love, and self-exaltation. While this is the only time that this particular phrase is used in the New Testament, it has an interesting etymology. Its origins can most likely be traced back to Colossians 1.18. Turn with me to Colossians 1.18 real quickly. Colossians 1.18. It reads, Christ is the head of the church, the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. God says that Christ must have preeminence in everything, but Diotrephes says, I must have preeminence in everything. We're called to be imitators of Christ, but Diotrephes wants others to be imitators of him. Diotrephes wants to promote his own image, not the image of Christ. Diotrephes so aspired to have preeminence that he put himself first and perceived anybody else with teaching authority to be a threat to his influence and power. He disregarded a letter of John due to personal glory and kept it secret from the church and from Gaius. So here it begs the question, is the disease of selfishness of Diotrephes unique to this time and this place? I would say absolutely not. Every one of us have felt and are feeling the effects of selfishness in our lives. The next heading says that sin is the root, the root of selfishness. The root of sin is selfishness. And I believe you could reduce the story of all of human history down to one conclusive fact. The Bible is a struggle to promote our own image versus the image of Christ. Or as Paul Tripp likes to say, the Bible is a struggle between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of Christ. Do you feel that? To promote our own image versus the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this. Christ died for all. That those who live would no longer live for themselves. But for him, who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus came so that we would no longer live for ourselves, our own image, our own promotion, imitators of self, but for the kingdom of God. Every false teaching, every rebellion against God is ultimately rooted in a fleshly desire to promote the kingdom of self and to claim glory for ourselves that properly belongs to God. It's been like this since the beginning. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are walking in communion with God. No sin. However, Adam and Eve rebel against God. Don't trust God and his goodness. 
and put themselves on the throne. They believe a lie. That, quote, they can be like God, knowing both good and evil. It was selfish ambition against God that descends the entire world into rebellion. Romans picks up this concept and says, quote, in chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, death spread to all men for all of sin. The sin of selfish rebellion against God in the garden descends the entire human race into rebellion and chaos. All of us in this room and all of us that have come before us are born into sin into the likeness of Adam. Staying on this same vein in Genesis chapter 11, all the people of the earth speak one language. In the Tower of Babel, verse 4, they conspire against God and say, quote, Come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us build a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is how God responds in his wrath. He disperses them among many nations. What was the root of the sin against God in chapter 3 and chapter 11? A desire to make a name for ourselves rather than for God. The desire to promote our own image rather than be imitators of God. Remember Colossians 1.18 says that all things are in Christ so that he would have preeminence. Earlier in that chapter, it says all things are made by God and for God, for Christ. Isaiah 43 says we are formed and made for God and his glory. So fundamentally, the whole of human history's pattern has been rebellion against God and the promotion of our preeminence and the insertion of our own against God's. I want to stop for just a moment and, and speak to... Uh, people in the room that may not be in Christ, that may not know where they stand with the Lord today. Do you understand that you are made in the image of God for God? Do you know, just like all of us, you've promoted your own image against God, against the one who made you? Do you know that like Diotrephes, you made yourself your own God? Do you know that what is God to do with you? What is God to do with somebody who he makes and only gives 1% of their attention to him? The Bible teaches us that Romans 6, that the wages of sin are death. So today, if you were to walk out of here and Christ would return, or you would die... The just God of the universe will render a righteous judgment in your life. Death for all eternity. Do you feel the weight of this? If you feel the weight of this, I want to plead with you. While your sin selfishly, selfishly says your life for me, Christ selflessly says my life for you. Turn from yourself to Christ. Look to the one who said... That he died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised. John Stott says the essence of sin is man substituting themselves for God, but the gospel is, uh, the essence of the gospel is God substituting himself for man. 
Listen to this. The gospel doesn't offer you a second chance to succeed. It offers a last Adam who already did. The gospel doesn't offer you a second chance to succeed. It offers you a last Adam who already did. So we are models of selfish, selfishness, but Christ is a model of selflessness. Would you come to him? Would you turn to Christ today? So, let me wrap up this heading. You've seen the root of sinfulness. We've diagnosed the disease of selfishness in Diotrephes' life. Now we're going to focus on the effects. What are the symptoms that are playing out in the body that we need to be aware of? We see them play out in two ways. Two ways. Words and in actions. Words and in actions. Let's take a look. Words. In verse 9, we see the rejection of authority. In verse 10, we see gossip and slander. And then as we move on in verse 10, we see actions stemming from words. We see the, the refusing of faithful missionaries and hospitality. We see stopping those who do want to welcome people in hospitality. And then we see putting out of the church excommunication from people who disagree with Diotrephes. So let's take them quickly one by one. The rejection of authority. This is what the end of verse 9 says. Does not, the implication of Diotrephes, does not acknowledge our authority. You see, selfishness and the desire for the first place comes in obvious conflict with authority. In fact, selfishness and self-exaltation hates authority. It doesn't submit to it. It finds every excuse to undermine it, create conflict, and sow seeds of discord. It causes Diotrephes to conceal a letter from the church and then spread wicked nonsense against John. That's number one. As we transition from verse 9 to verse 10, we see a stark change that happens. We see a striking statement. We see John declaring his intention to come and address it, to bring it up. So if I come, I will bring up what he, Diotrephes, is doing. What has gotten so important that makes John have to address this in the church? Well, Diotrephes' behavior is no longer one-to-one. It's no longer isolated to just a conflict with John. It's now spreading to the church. He's now moving to gossip and slander and bringing other people with him against John. This is something that can no longer be ignored in the church. So the second way that the promotion of self affects the church in words is gossip and in slander. This is what we see in verse 10. I'll bring up what he's doing. What is he doing? Talking wicked nonsense against us. Talking wicked nonsense against us. He's enticed other people in his evil behavior by resorting to gossip and slander. Gossip may seem harmless on the surface and to many people, but it's treated with seriousness throughout the Bible. It's in direct opposition to the call of the books of John to love the body. In fact, in Romans 1.30, it lists a list of sins that God turns over unrighteous people to. He lists murder, strife, maliciousness, and bitters of evil. 
gossip and slander all in the same line of thought. The Bible and John want us to feel the weight of gossip and slander. So, how do you define the terms? What is gossip? Gossip, as defined in Proverbs 18.8, says this. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the innermost parts. On the surface, gossip can taste good like a choice morsel. But it indulges in selfishness and image promotion. Ironically, while gossip's content focuses on another person, it's really at its core about me. It promises to make me feel a certain way about myself at the expense of someone else. We gossip because of what it promises to do for us, not for others. Therefore, we gossip. We're really worshiping our own image and our own selves rather than God. On the other hand, slander can be defined as whenever someone says something untrue, intentionally or unintentionally, that results in damaging someone else's reputation. In this passage, Diotrephes is doing both. He's gossiping and spreading slander about John and the missionaries sent out by John. And he's conjoling other people into this cause and promoting his own image. What this passage also teaches us is that it can be subtle in the church. It can be subtle in the church. You see, it can succeed. This passage shows that this was successful for Diotrephes. You see in the last verse, in chapter, the last part of chapter 10, that he puts other people out of the church. So it's likely other people followed him. It's likely that there was a majority that supported his decisions. So what this means uh, is that Diotrephes probably framed this up in a loving way. He's protecting the church. Sometimes gossip is framed up that way as well. It can be framed, shrouded in truth, concealed in a concern for another brother, but really it's for someone else. When we bring up something like this in the body, is our aim really to love one another or is it to tear down? Is it to love one another like Gaius did or tear down like the Diotrephes did? Grace Community Church, let's be a body of brothers and sisters that shuns the lure of gossip and seeks to build up our brothers and sisters like Gaius. Diotrephes doesn't stop there. His words then move to actions. His words move to actions. If you move into the middle part of verse 10, it says, and not content with that. Diotrephes wasn't content with just gossiping about John and the missionaries. He had to keep going. He wasn't content with just opposing John and gossiping about him. He must have action. He must have everybody on his side. He must exercise his disagreement in selfishness. Isn't this the pattern of selfishness? It's never content. It's never satisfied. Earthly ambition, earthly preeminence will never satisfy. If you focus on putting yourself first, it will never be enough. The same is with Diotrephes. His selfishness leads to arrogance, rejection of John. Arrogance leads to accusation and gossip, wicked nonsense. And gossip leads to action. What are these actions? There are three, and they progress. The first, I've said this before, refusing faithful missionaries. The second, Stopping those who do want to welcome those missionaries. And third, if they continue to persist and disagree, put them out of the church. 
Gaius's hospitality in the first part of Third John says my interest before or your interest before mine. Diotrephes says my interest before yours. Diotrephes refuses to demonstrate love to brothers and sisters, and in doing so, he exposes himself out of harmony with love and truth. In First John, John established three tests. If you remember them, a doctrine, obedience, and love test. John writes in this letter that Diotrephes has failed two of them, obedience and love. He disobeyed the commandments of the Lord to be hospitable, to look out for the interests of others. He's not loved his brothers, so he has failed the love test and drifted from the gospel. Not only do you see a lack of love and hospitality, you see him coercing the body. You see him, you see him bringing other people with him and exercising unbiblical authority. There's no disagreeing with theotrophies. He shuts down disagreement. So this begs the question for us today. How do we deal with disagreement in the church? It's obvious that disagreement and conflict between theotrophies is now affecting the church. What do you do about it? A couple of minor observations before we move to the next point. You might be saying in a sermon about imitation, imitating good works like hospitality, love, and care, against evil works like selfishness, gossip, and abuse, how would anybody be tempted to imitate Diotrephes? Would this be pre-transparent? I think the warning today is that gossip, conflict, abuse, selfishness can be subtle in the church. We must be on guard. The example of Diotrephes says that someone can know the truth, be in leadership, like Diotrephes likely was, exercise authority, have many followers, even be a tenured member of the body, and yet be an unbeliever and fail the love test. In fact, in this passage, it demonstrates you can advance in leadership on your own strength, on the coattails of truth and mislove. Truth must produce something in our lives to be truth. Truth that does not produce love in our lives is no truth at all. Truth that does not produce love in our lives is no truth at all. I'm reminded of a quote from the Dr. Morton Lord-Jones in regards to this passage. He says this, and this is describing what happened in Diotrephes' life. This is what we need to consider in our own lives. He says, whenever you allow your relationship to the truth to become purely theoretical and academic, you're falling into the grip of Satan. The moment in your study that you cease to become under the power of the truth, you become a victim of the devil. You can study the Bible without being searched and examined or humbled, without being lifted up and made to praise God, or moved with sorrow over what God has done with you, amazed that the beauty and wisdom of Christ has done for you. If you do not feel a desire to sing when you're alone in your study, or when you're standing in the pulpit, you may be in bad shape. You should always feel something of the truth's power to love in your life. This is what's happened to Diotrephes. So, the call for us today is to imitate good, not imitate evil. To imitate Gaius, not Diotrephes. And Gaius, he loves the brothers. Diotrephes loves himself. With Gaius, strangers become brothers. With Diotrephes, brothers become strangers. Gaius loves people who go out for the sake of the name. Diotrephes is the only interest in the sake of his own name. 
with Gaius, you have truth in harmony with love. In Diotrephes, you have truth at the expense of love. What works do we want to imitate today? All right. Time to turn the corner to consider the good example. John doesn't just give us a bad example. He also gives us a good example. And that comes in verse 12 in the person of Demetrius. Demetrius. Let's read verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everybody and from the truth. We also had our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. In verse 12, John provides the good example of Demetrius. Most commentators believe that Demetrius was carrying the letter from John to Gaius. There's three components of this verse that provide the basis of Gaius to continue in hospitality and not be tempted by the example of Diotrephes. Here are the three. He has a good testimony from everybody. See the words here? He received a good testimony from everybody. This is not a small statement. He has a sure and strong witness based on the truth from everybody that's come around him. That's a good thing. Second, it says, and from the truth itself. So he has not only somebody he loves, but someone who has fidelity to the truth. And finally, it says, you know that our testimony is true. So John puts his own stamp on the person and work of Demetrius. So he's saying, guys, receive my brother Demetrius. He has this testimony from everybody. He has a fidelity to the truth, and I agree with him as well. This is a good example of Demetrius. He's bringing the letter to Gaius. So, we've seen the necessity of imitation. We've seen the warning against imitating evil. Now we have the encouragement for the good of Gaius and Demetrius. So how does John wrap up this letter in verses 13 and 14? With a common, caring salutation. Let's read the last two verses of the three epistles of John. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. Hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. A couple of minor observations. The first, a similarity. If you remember the sermon from last week, there was a lot of similarity to that ending to this ending. John's closing remarks are almost identical to this twin epistle. Second, you see affection. John's heart is full of love for Gaius, but burden for Demetrius. He wants to see him. He wants to be face to face with him. He loves him. He said beloved four times in this letter, and that's how he's ending it. The third and final observation is you see an urgency. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this urgency. What is John so urgent about with this letter? We see a couple of phrases that indicate urgency. We see, I hope to see him soon. We see an appeal to face-to-face. And we see a peace be to you. This would indicate that John believes that the disease of theotrophies cannot be allowed to fester any longer. It must be dealt with before it spreads any further. The longer it festers, the worse and the harder it is to address. So it is with us. Question for Grace Community Church. Do we see it as an obligation in the body to be urgent about dealing with the disease of sin and selfishness in the body? 
the effects of conflict, or do we just see it as the pastor's responsibility? If this type of dissension can happen in the church, in the lifetime of the people who walked with Jesus, how much more can it for us? Do you believe that we can lose the gospel doctrinally, like in 2 John, or morally, like it is in 3 John? How do we corporately respond to this? We can look to John's example. We can imitate him in three ways. The first, soon. John says he hopes to see him soon. Let's resolve not to let conflict and sin fester in this body. Let's love one another. Let's hit at the root. If you see a conflict emerging, you see self-promotion emerging, let this passage be an encouragement and a rebuke to passivity in the body. So you see it, an imitation of soon. Second, you want to imitate wisdom. John plans to see them face to face. So, if he's going to confront Diotrephes, he's going to do it in person. Conflict resolution, rebuke, and discipline are best done in person. It cannot be outsourced to a letter, a phone call, a text. There's no substitute for your presence. The tendency in addressing conflict can be to gossip and cajole others into your into your diagnosis and not go in love and wisdom face-to-face with our brother and sister. Let this example be an encouragement to gentle wisdom and a rebuke versus a tendency to gossip and slander. Finally, you see an appeal to peace. You see an appeal to peace. Verse 15 says, Peace be to you. This salutation is different than the salutation from 2 John. Peace be to you is different. This would have been especially comforting knowing the tension in the body between Gaius and Diotrephes. Objectively, we have peace with God through Christ, but subjectively, we can have peace that reigns in our hearts and with our brothers and sisters. This is what John is praying for Gaius. At first glance, this idea that John is going to confront Diotrephes soon and an exaltation to peace might be in conflict. Many of you may be thinking the same thing. How are we going to have peace in the church if you're calling me for urgency? Guys is saying, how can I have peace if I'm going to have to confront, or you're going to have to confront Diotrephes? Wouldn't that just blow up in our face and cause more dissension, more distraction, division? On the contrary, when the body is already being torn up by division, imitators of self, it must be confronted for the sake of the name, for the sake of the body. Many people see rebuke in opposition to love, but nothing could be further from the truth. In this passage, the gospel would stay. So John's rebuke of Diotrephes is the loving thing to do. And that's what we must see. This reminds me of a quote by Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was a founding father of this country. In regard to the quest for independence and for the Revolutionary War, he says this, one of my favorite quotes. I prefer peace, but if trouble must come, let it come in my time so that my children may live in peace. What Payne is saying is I want peace. But he knew trouble with England was coming. He saw it as a choice, trouble now or trouble later. He says, let it come now so that my children may have peace. It's the same for John. 
Trouble's coming. It has come in Diotrephes. He chooses to confront it now so that his children, the followers of Christ in this body, may not drift from the gospel and have peace. Grace Community Church, let's be a church that loves our brothers and sisters and addresses this disease before it festers with urgency, wisdom, and peace. All right. In closing, it's the last point. The church can drift away from the gospel both doctrinally and morally. Second John is a warning against losing doctrine. Third John is a warning against losing love. The call of John to the church is to, and to us as individuals is to imitate good. Do not imitate evil. Imitate Gaius, not Diotrephes. We're called to imitation, to be conformed to the image of Christ. But we know we'll never be perfect imitators. We know we will never get there until we see him face to face. I want to read from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 as we close. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is. You see, there's coming a day when we will no longer need imitation. There's coming a day when we won't be imitators forever. For we will be changed when we see him, because we will be like him. We'll be like our Savior. You see, imitation is a crucial component to sanctification. But imitation is inherent in glorification. When we fall short in imitation, and we will... When we promote our own image, and we will. When we imitate ourselves with bad motives, we can turn to the gospel. We can turn our selfless selves to the selfless Savior. Remember that the duns of the gospel will be fuel for our dues of imitation. How sweet it is to get to imitate the one who left the throne, died, and was raised for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inerrant word. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us and that you show us Christ. Lord, thank you for this message today, Lord, that we are called to be imitators of you. That we're called away from selfishness into the selfless Christ. Lord, that we are called to urgency to love our brothers and sisters and not slander. And Lord, there's coming a day where we're going to be like you. We'll see you for who you are. And we can remember the gospel and we can reign with you forever. Lord, speak to us today. Help us take away from here to be imitators of you. To be a, a church that imitates you, not ourselves. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this word. In Christ's name, amen.